Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, October 6th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember, our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today, you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include, is there a supplement in your medicine cabinet that could actually treat Ebola? And an ancient natural remedy to prevent and treat gum disease. And if you have cancer, what can you do to help shrink your tumor? The danger of gaining just five pounds. And can cleaning your hands lead to a dreaded disease? Hmm... Well, Ebola is still big in the news, sorry to say. I'll say. And can we believe the news media when it comes to scare tactics? Things like the quarantines and a rise in cases, the porous borders with possible transmission to us and to other countries, the 3,000 troops that were sent to West Africa, and more. Can we help but ask again if this is a buildup to promote drugs and vaccine development? Now, we're going to talk about some of the natural therapies that might help in the case of an outbreak of Ebola. This is sure reminding me a lot of the H1N1 scare (laughs) with the threat of martial law to make people take the ineffective vaccines and stockpiling and all that. Well, it makes you almost paranoid. I don't think it's paranoid, but it can make you that way. Think of what happened during that swine flu epidemic. We wound up having the drug companies that make the vaccine uh, sell their product to the government with a guaranteed price, have protection against any complications that might come from the vaccine. And they made tons of money, and they did the same thing with It was Tamiflu. never proven to work. No, the vaccine was never proven to work. And people were still getting it. And it's still required in hospitals. It's amazing. And we paid for it out of tax dollars, and we still have to pay for it to get it. <laughs> it's quite a good deal for who? The people Drug that companies. make Yeah. Tamiflu was the same thing. That was stockpiled in many, many countries. It was almost like it was mandatory. The way the publicity went about Tamiflu, it was like if you didn't have Tamiflu and you got sick, you might really be at a higher risk for dying. And the interesting thing about it is is that the drug company Roach that makes Tamiflu didn't release its information uh, to organized groups that are experts in influenza and in, and in the drugs that are used to treat it, they wouldn't release their scientific data until just recently. And as it turns out, it really doesn't do much. Well, the other thing that happened is that there were consequences for people that suggested that the public take um, supplements, nutritional supplements. Oh, right. Now, that Andrew, thing with Wild, Andrew Wild. Yeah. Because he was recommending a, a nutritional su- supplement, astragalus, yeah, for people to treat the, the flu naturally. Right. And they got really upset because they wanted you to buy the drugs. Well, they basically threatened them along with all the well, other We had to take it off his website. We had to stop promoting it, period. In fact, so did about 20 other companies that were promoting things that might be helpful for the flu uh, or for any viral infection for that matter. So there seems to be what looks like a conspiracy you know, at the deepest level, that's giving a great advantage to the pharmaceutical companies for both the vaccine and for the sale of their products. And, of course, it adds up to probably $100 billion or more, which is no small uh, number, 
Uh, so here we go again. At least it seems that way with Ebola. Yeah, we just we don't know. I mean, how do we know? And then the other thing is, is that when people panic, they'll do anything. They'll take a vaccine without proof. Well, so what's oh, yes. Well, that's happening now. And we've got the medical profession thinking that the vaccine is, is something that should be done. When the doctors and, and the hospital staff is required to take the vaccine. No, but I'm talking about Ebola. I understand that, but we go For back the to flu. the other one. Yeah, I mean, they... the same thing relates to Ebola, probably. At least this point, that's, that's what it looks like. Because let's look at Ebola. I mean, it's what? It's confined to a small area of West Africa. It hasn't spread all over the world. It's been around since 1976. And the, the incidents, and it has gotten worse, however. Well, it's a bit worse this time, but it's not like it's spread out of out of West Africa yet. It hasn't gone to other areas of Africa. You would think it would do at least that. And when you have an incubation period that's up to 21 days, how many people would have come and gone out of that area when there was an epidemic, not knowing they were going to come down with an Ebola infection? If that's how you know, if that's how it works. Yeah, there's something really strange about it, isn't there? Well, it's just telling you that if there haven't been uh, any significant cases of Ebola in other areas, save for a few in the Philippines, but none in the U.S., none in Europe. I mean, something's wrong. That's not how an infectious disease spreads. So there's something else involved with that that has to be local to the area. So it's an endemic disease, and it's and it's great that, that we're thoughtful about trying to help the people who have this illness, but we're not looking at hundreds of thousands of people. We're looking at a few thousand people who have died from it. Well, remember what happened with the H1N1. They changed the definition of, of pandemic. pandemic. Yes. So... I guess there's always a possibility they could do this, that about this endemic. Well, yeah. Well, eventually what will happen if it does spread to other places is, I mean, that would be a huge issue. But in the the fact that it's been around since at least 76 and probably God knows how much before that tells you that this is not a disease that's going to be, is not going to be transmitted to other countries. It hasn't happened. So let's talk a little bit about why the quarantine isn't, isn't, the why the quarantine work. is making the spread of it worse. Well, they say that, but who knows? You know, quarantine is designed to what? Take people off the streets so that it's not spread from person to person. But if you've got large families and you're putting them in a confined place, it's possible that just being confined in a small space with somebody who's got Ebola is going to give it to the family members. Now, is that what's happening to explain the increase in the incidence of it? Also, if they're living in in crowded, unclean conditions. Well, that's what I'm talking about. That's exactly right. So is that what's happening? We don't really know that. I mean, the numbers that we're getting that are being reported to the public health department are not reliable. You don't even know. They even admit that they're not. I know. So you don't really know what's going on. And so here we go again with our memory taking us back to the the swine flu pandemic that was hyped to cause millions of deaths across the globe that didn't. It caused a few thousand deaths, probably fewer than happened from the, from the normal influenza that occurs every year. But it's nothing like 36,000 that are predicted to die in the U.S. every year from influenza. Fact is, those numbers are finally being changed. It's about time because they're way off the mark, way off the mark. Those are scare tactics that get people to panic and say, I've got to get my flu shot and I've got to get my Tamiflu, which is what a lot of people did. Even U.S. citizens were stockpiling Tamiflu. So it's like crying wolf. So now we don't know if we can believe them or not. Well, I would say you can't. 
I mean, it's it's nice we're going to Africa with 3,000 troops to try and clean up some of the environment and maybe make some quarantine centers or have centers where we can get these people uh, to get better health care. That's a good thing. But if you're talking about numbers, you, even if there were 3,000 deaths, which maybe there have been at this time or, or, or slightly more, that's a relatively small number of lives that are being affected by this disease. Look at malaria. Look at vitamin A deficiency that kills so many people in Africa every year. Now you're talking about up to maybe millions of people who are involved in some areas. Why don't we pay attention to the simple things? And what about the research that's being done that talks about what can be done to develop something to fight against Ebola? Why haven't we looked at things that could work like vitamin C? A simple study of vitamin C could change the way Ebola and many other viral infections can be handled. And there's good data on this. But, you know, before we get into that, Mm -hmm. I have a question about these 3,000 troops that have... Uh-huh. Gone over there. I don't know if three thousand troops means three thousand people yes, or does. how many people are in a troop. Yes. But whatever. There's a lot of people that have gone over there. Now, the only cases that came to the United States were from health workers, right? And of course, they were very careful with them and everything, and it didn't appear to to spread or anything from that. Well, all three recovered. But if we've got three thousand troops over there, mm-hmm. it seems like that's definitely increasing the risk of it coming to our country. Well, it might. I mean, but what's the risk, really? It's been zero so far. So what's 3,000 times zero? Zero. Oh. All right. So I don't see any change there. Okay. So how simple could it be then to take vitamin C? Well, should it work, first if, of all? Once we say this, though, they might take it, make us take it off the air. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that would be good. At least it would get some attention and put do... the concept out there for people to hear. Well, how did it work for polio back in the late 40s? It worked, but it wh- worked why, didn't it f- why didn't they follow through with it? Oh, because they invented the polio vaccine. <laughs> well, maybe that was part of it, probably so. But when we're still looking at, at what happened, there was a, an article published by a fellow named Renner, and I think it was 1948 in the journal Surgery, which is a major journal for the surgical uh, doctors in this country. And what they looked at were people who had polio that they gave IV vitamin C to, and none of them developed paralytic polio. And we're looking at substantial numbers. So we know it does something. And then there's so many anecdotal reports about how IV vitamin C works for severe viral infections, like severe influenza, or maybe for SARS, or maybe for other viruses uh, that that can, um, can kill you. And so wouldn't it seem simple enough to take a look at IV vitamin C? Why isn't there one published paper in the, in the recent past? Because there's no money to be made off of vitamin C like there is for medical uh, medicine. I think you hit it right on the head. That's exactly uh, what, is, what is happening in my mind because it's a cheap thing to do. There are a lot of people who think it works. It wouldn't be, I mean, why not just shut us up by doing a study? You know, it's got a a few hundred people who have an inf- a viral infection or use it in Africa, you know, where they're having these. That's a Why cheap not? way to treat it. Yeah. What have you got to and lose to study there? it. You can use it in addition to the other things that are already being used. It would be an easy thing to do. And what if it, what if it worked for Ebola? What if it worked? We'd have something that would make it maybe unnecessary to have the vaccine, although you wouldn't want to turn away a vaccine that actually worked to prevent it. 
and it would solve the problem of having to develop a drug, although you could still do that if you wanted to. But if you've got a, a relatively inexpensive way of doing this, I mean, there's lots of ways that you could take vitamin C and lots of different forms of vitamin C that could make it a simple thing. But just taking a vitamin C every day isn't going to do it. No, so no. there's certain that, ways to go about this. So like, Absolutely. Okay, so there's like taking it orally to bowel tolerance. What so does let's that talk mean? about what that means. Yeah, so Bob Cathcart, my good friend Bob Cathcart, who's now dead. Who worked with Linus Pauling. Yeah, I worked with Linus Pauling. And I knew Bob quite well. In fact, I was his doctor towards the end of his life. And I have great respect for his work. Uh, he was, he invented this idea that when you're well, you can take, a, the body will accept a certain amount of vitamin C. And if you take a little bit more than your body will accept, you get diarrhea from it. So some people, 500 milligrams is all they can take. Other people, they can take 10 or 12 or 15 grams in a day and they do all right. But if you're sick... You can take a lot more. You can take a lot more. Maybe somebody who could take 5 grams or 10 grams a day now take 100 grams, like in the case of people who have uh, severe viral infections. But the best way to do it, of course, is to give it IV, which can get a little pricey, but when you compare it to the price of other things that are given, it's it's almost negligible. So you would give it IV because that way you wouldn't have to give as much well, or it you, wouldn't bother your stomach? You or? can't get – well, the, all those things uh, would be true. But the main thing is that when you give IV vitamin C, it bypasses the gut. So you don't have to absorb it through the gut. You don't have to run the risk of getting diarrhea from it. Uh, and you can get much higher blood levels of it. And you need very high levels. And if you give a continuous drip, that, of course, is the best way to do it. If you're really sick, I know we have stockpiled a little vitamin C in our refrigerator. I don't know if you notice that out there. <laughs> a little bit there. In fact, it's old and we they need might to replenish rate us. it. Well, there's not that much there. So that if we ever got sick from something like a severe influenza or SARS or Ebola or some other viral infection, we'd be able to treat ourselves here at home, me being a doctor and you being a nurse. Right. Well, the other thing, there is another way too for children. I guess it's recommended is yes. enemas. It's a simple way to do it. So, in a country uh, like Africa, where maybe you couldn't afford to give IV vitamin C to all these people, though I think you, I think we could absorb that. Be cost. cheaper than giving them all vaccines and lots don't or exist, developing but... one or bringing three thousand troops over there. You're going to pay a lot of money for that. Be a lot cheaper to just give IV vitamin C to them and see what happens. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a big thing that we should be looking at to, to use to treat these people. So when would a person start taking the uh, vitamin C? Because it sounds like the incubation period is 21 days? Is that it, Up to 21 up days. To 21? Most of the time it's about a week or 10 days. Okay. But there are a few so, cases. So it could be from a week to three weeks before, be you even get, before you even get any symptoms. Two or three days to three weeks. So as soon as you get symptoms. Well, good. that's when you'd, you'd want to do the IV vitamin C. And if you're trying to prevent getting it, then the suggestion might be to take as much as 20 grams a day to try and prevent it from coming on. Well, depending on your personal tolerance, not everybody could do that. Well, that's right. You'd take as much as you can, or you can use another form of it that's called liposomal vitamin C. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the vitamin C is hooked up to a lipid, a phospholipid, which makes it fat-soluble as well, and it's much easier absorbed to make higher blood levels that are almost three times what you can get by taking plain vitamin C. Uh, and it's also nanoparticle size, 
which means it can get into very small places where normally it might not. Like into all your organs and your you brain into, and every yes, place. Yes, it can get, that's right, it can get every place. So its effect would be better, but the cost of it is a little high. And the best way to, to take vitamin C is to take the regular vitamin C first to bowel tolerance and then add to it some liposomal vitamin C if you need high levels of it. The regular is ascorbic acid. Ascorbic acid would be the most inexpensive and probably the best. It's probably twice as strong as other forms of ascorbate. Well, ascorbate, doesn't that have other things in it like calcium and magnesium and yeah. so forth? So you don't want to That's not a bad that. thing. Well, you, well, the magnesium c- could give you diarrhea faster than the vitamin C. So. Yes, yeah, it's, it's possible, yeah. So if you had a mixture of that to take with your regular C, you could do that. But ascorbic acid is probably the best thing today, topped off with liposomal. So you would take, what, about three grams every... 15 minutes? Well, until... to find out your bowel tolerance. Yeah, yeah, there are protocols for that. I don't want to get into what they are because it's a little complicated. But yes, you, you might... But if a person is on a lot of vitamin C, that there are things that they need to avoid. We oh, should probably mention that, well, like sugar and, and smoking. Well, you, you always anyway. I mean, sugar and... Yes, that's right. And and, and so that's that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. So, yes. I, because I, the sugar blocks the vitamin C. Well, it competes for the same receptor site. So when you are taking sugar in, glucose in, or, or, or high fructose corn syrup, or whatever has glucose and fructose too, the glucose part of it competes with the site for vitamin C. And, and that, that happens in your cells as well. So if you're taking vitamin C and you're taking sugar at the same time, you're fighting against what it does. And of course, if you're smoking, you're using up a lot of your vitamin C. And are there times that it's contraindicated? Absolutely. I mean, that that is is a is a very important thing to look at, and you're really you're really looking at at things like a defect in, uh, in in your blood. So if you have what's called a G6PD defect, uh, that would be something that would be important. If you had kidney disease, that would be something that if it's advanced, you certainly wouldn't want to do. Uh, and of course, if you have a problem with Iron overload in your system. There's something called hemochromatosis. And while you may say, God, what's that? But 5% of the population has a recessive gene for it. You're looking at a lot of people who you've got to be careful of because it can convert that vitamin C uh, into something that actually becomes toxic to the body. So in people with kidney failure, iron overload, or this defect in uh, in red cells, G6PD deficiency, you shouldn't give uh, IV vitamin C or any really large doses of vitamin C. But this is helpful knowledge for people, whether they, uh, you know, are afraid of getting Ebola or not, because it's good for viruses. It's even good for mono. Well, it's oh, it's phenomenal for mono. That's an, mono. That's another story. So when we're looking at this whole thing about Ebola, we're in the dark to a large extent. We're very vulnerable to what's being published in the in the media. You can't trust it because there are conflicts of interest. And if we're consistent with what happened years ago with the swine flu and so many other things like it, you can't trust it. So here we are. Anyway, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Nurse Vicki's first 2020 tip on Do You Need Motivation to Help You Exercise? And when we come back, we'll be talking about a secret ancient natural remedy to prevent and treat gum disease. Do you need a little motivation to exercise? Sometimes I do. You're right. 
Well, you know, with fall here and winter not far off, it gets harder to get up in the morning to exercise, especially if it's, if it's dark, dark or, yeah. or if it's rainy and right. you want to sleep in a little bit. Yeah. And then what happens? You let the exercise go. So I thought some reminders of the benefits of exercise might be helpful to motivate people to exercise. Like, for example, exercise has been shown to lessen the chance of dying from cancer as mm. well as a healthy lifestyle with that. Yes. Exercise improves the action of chemotherapy if you have cancer. Mm-hmm. A sports medicine study shows that above average level of exercise may delay the onset of bone loss. Mm-hmm. Moderate exercise of 30 minutes a day promotes weight loss of an average of 7 pounds. Wow. It improves sleep quality, duration, and efficiency. Mm -hmm. Exercise not only improves sleep, but it lifts depression, and it increases vitality, so it gives you more energy. It decreases your blood pressure. It makes you stronger. It improves your endurance. It's good for your heart and lungs. Exercise is anti-aging, and it helps to treat diabetes. I want a pill for that. Right? <laughs> you got to do it. <laughs> That's what, that'll be the next thing is we'll develop a pill so you don't have to exercise, right? Yeah, right. So remember, if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. And right that on. includes exercise. Use it or lose it. I don't know of anything that's more powerful as an anti-aging strategy than exercise. It's really potent. So, modern medicine and dentistry seem to gravitate to chemicals over natural remedies, including toxic chemicals such as the controversial chlorhexidine in mouthwash that can be dangerous to swallow. Mm-hmm. While, you know, put this in your mouth, but don't, don't swallow, swallow any of it. <laughs> it's just like the toothpaste thing. It says if, oh. you, if your child <laughs> swallows a pea-sized amount of this toothpaste that has fluoride in it, Rush them to the poison control. That would be Crest would be one example of that. Yeah. And so, I mean, what... There's a lot of them that do. Oh, for sure. So while conventional dentistry advocates chlorhexidine and other chemicals to reduce plaque and oral bacteria and to treat gingivitis and periodontal disease, Mm -hmm. ancient Ayurveda, that's from India, has been preventing all of this with oil pulling and gum massage with natural oils for thousands of years. So, you know, you might say, what does that mean, oil pulling? Well, what the pulling part means is that it pulls the toxins out. So how that works is if you have an oil in your mouth like this, then anything that's soluble in the oil is going to diffuse out from whatever it's in contact with into the oil and stay in the oil. So if you've got uh, problems with endotoxin, okay, from bacteria, that are in your mouth, that endotoxin is going to go everywhere, including into the oil. And if you continue to swish it around in your mouth for 10 minutes, like they're saying, a lot of that is going to stay well, in the, the oil. Well, the oil pulling is for 20 minutes to swish it around. Okay. This particular study that we talked about was massaging your gums with it for 10 minutes. Yeah, well, the, one of the problems here is try massaging your <laughs> your gums for 10 minutes and swishing oil around for 20. Now you're looking. No, 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 it. that's two different things. But I think it seems to me, mm-hmm. just from my opinion, not on a study, but either one would probably do it. But this morning I tried the swishing one <laughs> for 20 minutes and I I used uh, liquid coconut oil because I melted it, uh-huh. and I, it was one tablespoon. But before I did it, I brushed my teeth really well and everything, uh-huh. and, and it's uh, suggested that you do it in the morning before you eat. And I swished it around 
for 20 minutes and my mouth got kind of tired from swishing, <laughs> you know, because my muscles, my muscles I mean, weren't 20 used seconds to that. would be what most people would tell Well, no, maybe. you can walk around and do things while you're doing I it, just, you know. see your tongue. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, it made my tongue really, <laughs> my tongue really pink. <laughs> it did. There's yeah. no coat. And when I was learning about it, it was suggested to maybe even put about three or four drops of oregano in a t- tablespoon of coconut oil. Uh-huh. But you could also do it with olive oil and sesame seed That's oil. That's what they did so, in the studies. That's yeah, right. so you could use any of those oils, and it worked just as well, if not better, than the, than the chemical that all the dentists and periodontists and endodontists recommend. Well, it was superior to all the other forms that were done in this study, including the chlorhexidine. That's Which what is I what just they're said. Talking about. Yeah, no, it wasn't it just better. equal to. It was superior. I, that's right. Oh, I see. You're okay, right. I said, or You're better. Right. So then the other thing that's recommended if you do the swishing over the massaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> is that um, it's better to use a different toothbrush. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done uh, brushing your teeth afterwards, like to brush them really well afterwards, and also be sure to spit it all out because if you, you don't, don't spit it. it all out, then you're going to swallow all those toxins that you just pulled out. You know, it's a little analogous to bile in the liver. What what the liver does is detoxify, and then it excretes it into bile, which is very soluble f- for fatty substances, fatty chemicals. And so fatty chemicals go into it, and they stay there. And then it goes into the intestinal tract where it's excreted. Now, in your mouth, when you put that oil and you leave it there for that long, you're really creating a kind of toxic excretion yeah. okay, into the oil and then spitting it out. So... If you swallowed it, would it be the worst thing in the world? Probably not. No, but not. it just kind of undoes what you've been doing. Not really, because that, you might re- You're right. It would it would undo some of it, but it, and it wouldn't. But it wouldn't be a disaster because still a lot of that would go out. But the best thing to do is exactly what you said. So you need to pay attention because if you're not paying attention, you might swallow it. <laughs> <laughs> And then she suggested um, soaking your toothbrush in hydrogen peroxide just to sterilize, to, to sterilize it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So anyway, t- it cleans your tongue and your teeth and your gums. Uh-huh. And um, there's other things that oil um, pull- pulling may do. I mean, people purport that it has other benefits. So whiter teeth, healthier gums, prevents bad breath, it increases your energy, clears your mind, mm-hmm. decreases headache, clearer sinuses, mm-hmm. alleviates allergies, better sleep, clearer skin, regulates menstrual right. cycles, so lymphatic a, system, all this stuff. So it says it does a lot of things, and these are Ayurvedic principles, okay, the, the medicine from India that's 5,000 years old. So there's two kinds of ways that you can look at what's valuable. One is history, and what have people done, because it works. And the other, we tend to call scientific data, that we tend to rely on more in, in modern medicine, even though a lot of the research that's done is useless and because there are conflicts of interest. And people who are paying for the studies very often are the people who have the most to gain from it. So they're not publishing the negative studies, and they're looking at the advantages of what the study showed rather than an honest appraisal of all the things that were found. So you can be very critical of the scientific research, okay, that we have in this country. And you could be critical of something that's not done on a scientific basis at all, which would but be... But it's been like, working for thousands of yeah. years. And, and this, why not give it a try if you're not doing well? And keep in mind that when you're doing th- something like sesame oil or the things that are done in Ayurveda, it's not very toxic. Very few people are dying from the <laughs> treatments that are used 
Whereas in Western medicine, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of people that are dying every year from the drugs, and they're yeah, like for example, you could rub rub all these oils on your skin, and it's it's nurturing to your it's nutritious to your skin. It feeds your skin. It's healthy and it's good and it works. And on the other hand, you can put all these antibacterial things all over your skin, and it can make you. Oh, sick. We're going to talk about that later. What some of those things do, but right now I wanted to say that the chlorhexid, the chlorhexidine, can stain your teeth and your gums and your tongue brown if you use it regularly. So nothing like having a brown mouth. <laughs> well, that's right. And and the and it also um, these mouthwashes contain chemicals that are found in a toilet bowl cleaner, and <laughs> and they also can be deactivated by conventional toothpaste that contains sodium lauryl sulfate. Yeah. Now, triclosan is another chemical to avoid, and that's often in the, in the mouthwashes also, and we're going to be talking about that one at the end Later. of the show. Yeah. And the other things that these chemicals can do are what? They can create resistant strains of bacteria. They can wipe out the healthy bacteria. Exactly. And they can make, make it possible for an overgrowth of bacteria that can be lethal because what you're doing is you're killing the bacteria that are sensitive to the mouthwash Right, mm-hmm. but and you're leaving the ones that are resistant there. So very often, what you're doing is you're killing the ones that you'd like to have there, as well as the ones that you wouldn't like to have there, and that can create a problem. So this is an interesting way to approach things, and I would be in support of doing this rather than the chlorhexidine. All right, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki, and we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio, and we'll be talking about if you have cancer, what can you do to help shrink your tumor? Back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Zabuda here with Nurse Vicki. When we think about cancer patients on chemotherapy, <laughs> we usually think about how they need to rest. Right. And a new study now shows that with exercise, the tumor shrinks more than from the chemotherapy alone. Also, the dose of the chemotherapy could potentially even be reduced with the exercise. And if a person exercises moderately, say three to five times a week, the physical activity helps prevent cancer in the first place, and it reduces deaths from cancer up to 50%. Right. Why, should, why aren't we doing more of that and less of the other things that are invasive and toxic to the body? Yeah, this is what the, doc- the doctors need to be promoting in all patients, especially those with cancer. Exactly. It's, I mean, lifestyle is what? the most powerful medicine in the universe. So why not live a healthy lifestyle so that you'll live better, better quality of life and longer? Because, because the first choice when you go to the doctor seems to be drugs. Well, pills of some kind because that's how we're trained. Yeah. Well, now, that's why they're called medical doctors. Or you, well, you're a medical doctor. Yeah, well, I'm a recovering medical doctor, yeah. right, who's <laughs> trying to learn a different way to add to what I already know. But you know, I have a question. Often people that do have cancer and they're going through chemotherapy and Mm -hmm. everything, they become really fatigued. So is it good to encourage exercise in that situation? 
You have to use your judgment. I mean, you can't whip a dead horse, right, and try to get it to do something it can't do. And the fatigue can be profound. And yet still exercising that group would be helpful. And it depends on who the person is. So it's not one size fits all. It's not a blanket statement. You have to look at your patient and pick and choose the treatments that are the best. But lifestyle should always be at the top of the list. And then we should work from there. And, of course, we have it backwards in medicine because we aren't experts in in, uh, lifestyle. In fact, look at the opinion that most oncologists have about diet. They say, it doesn't matter what you want. You've already got the cancer. It's like, really? I mean, you don't think that you can make a difference? Well, and some of them, I think, are afraid if you eat healthy and if you take uh, nutritional supplements Mm -hmm. that it might make the cancer cells thrive. Well, that's one of the, the comments that's made. However, but maybe look, you could crowd those bad cells out by having healthier cells around it. Well, who knows? I mean, the answer to that question, and it's a good one. And look about juicing. That seems to help a lot of people that have cancer. They go to clinics that, when they have cancer, and they do juicing and the coffee enemas and all those well, kind of things. Well, there is value to stuff like that if you understand it. And yet there are many different ways of looking at integrative uh, ways to treat cancer that I think are important. And, of course, the mainstream doctors in general don't know that, but they need to be exposed to it. And it's why eventually, I'd say within the next month or six weeks, we will, pro- we will provide a video on our website on com that actually shows how mainstream doctors in oncology and radiation oncology can work with people who are in integrative medicine doing complementary alternative strategies in addition to it was a beautiful experience because we've already done that that event. It was a two-hour session. We've done that with other patients also. Oh, we do that all the time with other patients. But the patients deserve to have any approach that could be useful. So when we're looking at things like exercise here, this is huge. But keep in mind this study that was done at the University of Pennsylvania uh, was done on mice. It wasn't done on people. And so we don't have that long-term data. But we do have lots of research that shows that exercise will be beneficial after you've already got the cancer. I mean, there was a study done at Loyola University that was published in January of this year uh, that showed that men, they looked at 1,000 men who, had, uh, who were exercising different amounts. And those that were, doing, were burning more than 12,600 calories a week were 48% less likely to die than those that burned Fewer than 2,100 calories well, a week. if they were dying, they probably wouldn't be able to burn that many calories. No. Well, I mean, look at this. A 175-pound man who walks briskly for 30 minutes a day, five days a week, burns 4,200 calories. So if you rode a oh, bike or okay. you jogged or you played tennis. It just sounds like so Or you many. were a stairmaster. Well, it sounds like a lot, but it, and it is a fair amount. But look at the advantages of exercise and the detoxification that it, 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 it enhances as well. Uh, as well as other inherent things that we haven't even discovered yet. So it sounds like movement can affect chemotherapy metabolism. Well, it does. And, and, it's, and in these mice that they studied, they divided them in four groups. They gave two groups a drug called adriamycin. And, uh, and they gave Which two... Which is an old and a common chemotherapy. It's one that's it. used today a lot, particularly in, in uh, breast cancer. Uh, and they had another two groups that received placebo injections, so they didn't get the the uh, melanoma cells that were injected in the other group. And then they exercised one group, and they didn't exercise the other group of, of each of those sections. And what they found was, to their surprise, is that the exercise didn't change how well the the, the tumors grew. It didn't change how the mice did. But it did when they were taking 
the adriamycin drug and exercise, there was an additive effect so that the tumors that were present uh, when they were examined a few weeks later were smaller. Do you think it could have been the increased blood supply from the exercise? Well, who knows? They it gets more chemotherapy right to that area? Well, you know, everybody who, not everybody, but almost everybody who writes, uh, does a research project has at the end of the article, well, this might be what we're looking at. And and they're postulating that that's the case. And I just, I'd have to say I doubt that's true because it, the blood supply to a tumor doesn't have a nerve supply. So it doesn't change. Uh, r- relatively the yeah. amount of blood that goes there, but it's still a hypothesis that we could look at. I see. Okay. Well, you know, we know that uh, chemotherapy like the adriamycin can have unpleasant side effects, and one of oh. them is cardiovascular disease. It, yes. So if you exercise before you have chemotherapy, mm-hmm. that protects heart cells. Yes, it does. And it's something that should be another thing that's overlooked and not done. Uh, because... This drug, doxyrubicin or adriamycin, is potentially a very serious cardiac, cardiac effects in people who are on it. If you have congestive heart failure, about 50% of those people will die. Admittedly, that number is low, and maybe the mortality rate is about 2%. But, it's, but it occurs even within two or three days of starting it. Uh, in 11% of people are taking standard doses. So the acute cardiotoxicity with chest pain and a myopericarditis and the palpitations and the other things that go with it, can be a big issue. And then it's also dose-related. So if you have a low dose, the risk might be of the acute episode of this in the range of 4%. But if you're in a high dose, it can be as much as 36%. So this is a toxic drug, and chemotherapy is a big deal. And haven't we talked about studies in the past where lifestyle were sometimes is sometimes more powerful than than chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. Well, I think that's true. Without the side effects. Well, that's well, true. good side effects. Yeah, and it and it doesn't mean one or the other. It means use your common sense, do the best thing you can do to increase your odds. It's like buying insurance to protect against getting a recurrence after the original treatment. Well, what's the best thing is for people to do all this stuff when they're healthy and then maybe they'll prevent prevent it. I don't think there's any doubt about because that. Because it's easier, to, I think, to prevent it than it is once you get something to try to reverse it, you know? Right. Well, this, this study that was done at Harvard, okay, and published in the Journal of Physical Activity and Health uh, was, uh, was one study on 1,000 men, but there was also a study in the Journal of American Medical Association in May of 2005 that showed that people who exercised three to five hours a week at two or three miles per hour if they women who had hormone-sensitive breast tumors had a 50% re- reduction in deaths. And over a 10-year period, the absolute mortality decreased 6%. So we're looking at some really big numbers here. And, and they're as good as many aspects of the treatment that we do that we call adjunctive chemotherapy. Well, exercise is, is really a healthy thing. So as long as you can do it, do it. Well, I think that's right. And and it's good for just about everything. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuta here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on don't take anything for granted. I can buy into that one. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the danger of gaining just five pounds. This is a surprise. And can cleaning your hands lead to a dreaded disease? (laughs) 
Well, don't take anything for granted. Why is the car's windshield so large and the rearview mirror so small? Because our past is not as important as our future. So, oh, there's a good one. <laughs> look ahead and move on. Was this Lao Tzu who said this, or Confucius, <laughs> or was it Einstein? <laughs> That's great. Friendship is like a book. It takes a few minutes to burn, but it takes years to write. Indeed. So treasure your friends and don't take them for granted. That's right. All things in life are temporary. If they're going well, enjoy them. They're not going to last forever. And if they're going wrong, don't worry. They can't last that long either. (laughs) I hope you're right. It may seem like it. Now, old friends are gold and new friends are diamonds. If you get a diamond, don't forget the gold because to hold a diamond, you need a base of gold. Oh, jeez. You're a jeweler at heart. (laughs) A blind person asked, can there be anything worse than losing eyesight? Yes, Hmm. losing your vision. Oh, that's powerful. I like that. Okay, worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles, but it does take away today's energy and peace. For sure. Amen. Amen. Recently, we were looking back at some old photo albums, and it was apparent that we have gained weight over the years. (laughs) It it seems to just, it gets you. It's like an infectious disease, right? (laughs) And most people's weight fluctuates within about a five to seven pound range, and we consider it normal. Right. Then there are those who lose a lot of weight just to gain it all back again, plus them. Right. And a recent study now shows that gaining even five pounds can increase our blood pressure. Just what you needed to hear, right? Yeah, because, you know, most people know that obesity can increase our blood pressure. Oh, but yeah. Five That's pounds? Wonderful. Come on. Wouldn't seem like much, and these bums decided to study it and kind of rub our noses in it. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, if weight gain is in your abdomen, though, your blood pressure can go up more. So what's the difference between the brown fat and the white fat? Well, see, the stuff that's inside your abdomen that uh, accumulates is a much more serious thing. And those of us that are deconditioned, that don't eat right... Uh, that are under a lot of stress, don't sleep well, uh, we are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And this is really the warning sign of it. Metabolic syndrome. Yeah, and as you see that belly stick out as we do as you age, I mean, it's it's amazing. You get to be about 50 or 60, and it, those pounds just keep coming on, maybe a couple pounds a year. But after 10 years, you're looking at 20 pounds. Well, look at this. The average person often gains up to 8 pounds from Thanksgiving to New Year's. That's true. It's like no wonder... Th- there's more heart attacks and strokes. Well, that's true. Well, these people that did the study, okay, looked really, they presented a paper at the American Heart Association's High Blood Pressure Research Scientific Session in 2014. And, and these are people from the Mayo Clinic. And they, they found the following things in people who gained up to about 10 pounds uh, or up to 11 pounds of weight. Their systolic blood pressures went from 114 to start with to an average of 118. So it's four points. Doesn't seem like much, but four points. So here it's and kind four of almost there. a pound a point. Well, a point. something like that, almost. And those that gained more weight, as you said, inside their ab- abdomen had a greater blood pressure rise. And those that had an 11 pound weight gain didn't change their cholesterol, insulin, or blood levels. And they still had these findings. And these were in people between the ages of 18 and 48. Well, look at people that go on cruises. Our, exactly. I've, you know, we've never been on a cruise, but, but I've 
you know, they're known for having really good food and people gain weight. And I remember my parents told me one time that they sat at a certain dinner table on the cruise Uh the whole time. And the same people sat across from them. And she, my mom said it was like this woman just kept blowing up. <laughs> she, she was growing right in front of her eyes. Well, it's those people who are gaining maybe five or six or seven pounds or a little bit more that are like binge eating are having an effect on their blood pressure in just a short time. It shows you that lifestyle has a powerful effect on blood pressure along with many other things that we know that well, are important. Well, many times when people go on vacations, they want to celebrate and eat more and you know okay so they go away to college or look at people the difference between before people are married and after they're married it's almost like a rule you you see the guys gaining about 15 pounds and the women as well and having babies oh yeah well thank god that (laughs) and then if you have an injury or some health issue and you can't exercise yeah well that's right well so what should the treatment for blood pressure be like should it take this into account should we treat the cause or should we just give some drugs? And, and what's, what is the role of medication in treating hypertension? Is that the, the first thing to rely on? In general, what doctors do is say, well, until you lose, okay, or until you change your lifestyle and your blood pressure comes down, let's start out with this water pill. So they recommend a thiazide diuretic, usually HCTC, which is hydrochlorothiazide. And what does that do? Yeah, it'll take your blood volume down. And if you take the volume down, you're going to have less in the way of pressure inside that vessel. And that's something to pay attention to. And it's a good thing to lower blood pressure. But now you have what's called hypovolemia, a low volume. So when you stand... You can pass out. Well, you could, but most people don't. But they're still suffering with a little bit less volume than they need. And they're tired. And what about the other things that it can do, like raise your cholesterol? Increase your risk for type 2 diabetes by increasing insulin resistance. Increasing your uric acid, which can cause gout. Lowering your magnesium, which can raise your blood pressure. Lowering your potassium, which also can do the same thing and cause lots of changes in the heart and the rest of the body. So is that really the choice you want? Or what about some of the other medications? You want to take the ACE inhibitors, which are like lisinopril, which so many doctors are prescribing? only to find out that a lot of people who are in renal failure got it because of that. Wow. Or have a cough from it or yeah. some other symptom that's related to it that might be related to their GI tract or their uh, immune system or their s- central nervous system. And the beta blockers, sort of the same thing. Lots of side effects to them. Why not treat the cause and, and deal with that? Well, we need to pay attention to our weight. I mean, it's easier to watch it and cut back a little than to have to take it all off, you know? Oh, yeah, but it's not just uh, weight that does this. I mean, it's it's other things, too. It's a lack of exercise. exercise. It's too much stress. It's not getting enough sleep. One of the w- most common causes of hypertension is insomnia. People don't realize that. That causes a lot of stress. Sure, and then there can be other problems that can cause hypertension, things like hyperparathyroidism or hyperthyroidism or a number of adrenal problems. I mean, there are lots of endocrine causes for it. But the most common things are things that we can deal with lifestyle alone. So maybe what we need to do is pay attention to what we eat and get regular exercise. I know of no better way to lower blood pressure than to exercise hard a couple times a day. And I mean dramatic drops, like from 180 over 110 to maybe something like 140 over 90, just from exercise alone or, or more so. For wow. some people, I know it's that way with me, 
Mine drops sometimes to 120 over 80 when I when I stay fit. Boy, exercise has been coming up a lot today, hasn't it? As it, it? should. I mean, well, you know, when a person is like, say, around 30 years of age to 60, uh-huh. that's when it's good to better to keep your weight down. But after 65 or 70, a few extra pounds prolongs our life. That's an interesting other side. So the paradox is, is what do you do? Well, first of all, you don't want to be skinny if you're older, particularly if you're over the age of 70. And you don't want to be overweight if you're younger. You want to stay fit. You want to eat well. You don't want stress. You want to sleep. I mean, all those things add up. So you have to take all this literature into perspective and look at each person and then decide what strategy you're going to recommend. Okay, so what scares you the most? This is a test now. How about cancer? Does that scare you the most? Germs or chemicals? Uh-huh. <laughs> now, all doesn't right. it seem that our society has become germaphobic with all the hand sanitizers and the wipes and the other antibacterials? Absolutely. Well, germs can be bad, but they can also be healthy, you know, building up our resistance to infection. There are too many harmful chemicals to talk about, but one common antibacterial carcinogenic toxin that's a mouthful that is in many commercial hand sanitizers and soaps and other products is triclosan and another one is octalphenol which can be found in some paints pesticides and plastics and breast cancer can now be added to the list of dangers from these particular chemicals now one surprise was that you can get Secondhand effects from common disinfectants. In other words, like if somebody just hands. put it on their hands and they shake hands with you or touch you or take care of you. Like think about in the hospital, you know. I mean, I even think like a church, we put the hand sanitizer on to go up for to do communion. <laughs> and then we're holding that and putting that in everybody's mouth. Well, I have my own special one that doesn't have those chemicals in it. But, well, that's you right. know, think about it. And well, then also, you know, BPAs, the bisphenol um, A uh-huh. that are in this uh, octalphenol that's that's found in some of the, the plastics, mm-hmm. too. You know, it decreases fertility. Well, it can cause a lot of problems. And what we're looking at is a study here that was done, okay, in the journal Chemical Research and Toxicology. And what they found was is these two drugs you're talking about, uh, promoted the growth of human breast cells in lab dishes and also increased breast cancer tumors in mice that make them more severe. So all a lot of the things that we're exposed to in the environment are things that weren't really adequately tested. And the, the philosophy has been that if it, if we, by the FDA, is if you can't find a problem with it, it's okay. And then we'll leave it on the market for a while and do the research that actually needed to be done in the first place, later. which is expose everybody to it and see what happens. Well, so years like, later, we find out that it causes these problems, and then it gets taken off the market. It's sort of like ass backwards, right? You know, nowadays it seems like these chemicals are every place you go. I mean, try going to the hospital. Them. I went to visit a friend in the hospital. By every elevator they have them. They have them by every room. They well, tell I understand you to, that. I know. Well, because they don't want the, the, the cross. MRSA, but there are hand sanitizers that don't have triclosan That's in them. the point. That's right. Yeah, that's the point, all right. And and you can get healthy ones. Um, there's one that you can get easily. It's called CleanWell. Mm-hmm. And I carry that around in my purse. It's just a small little. Where can, you know, where, where can people get CleanWell? I got it at Whole Foods. Oh, okay. 
Right. We don't have any stock in that, by the way. No, in I'm just talking about it. It's a good one. But another, well, anyway, we can talk about some other pr- products in a few minutes. But there are other ways to kill germs. And they found that just plain soap and water is just as effective as all these ke- these chemicals. And um, copper, we've talked about copper before. Oh, that if should that be was all on. over the place in hospitals because it kills bugs in, in less than two minutes. And hydrogen peroxide and vinegar. I was thinking you like, spray the hospital. like we ought to go to Africa <laughs> with our hydrogen peroxide <laughs> and vinegar. That's and right. Right next to the guys in space suits who have got all this equipment yeah, and fancy chemicals. That are spraying chemicals every place. And then there's products like Genie's Green Max Pro that I have on our, on uh-huh. our um, website under uh-huh. my list of um, safe skincare products. Uh-huh. In fact, it contains things like tea tree oil, eucalyptus, kelp, turmeric, and grapeseed extract, and geranium. And All those things. things together kill viruses, bacteria, and fungus. Yeah, well, they're important to know about, right? Yeah, and and so you can use something like that for deodorant. You can use it to clean the house. Sure. You can use it as a hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. You could use it for a lot of things. But this triclosan... This is a pesticide. It's a neurotoxin. It's an endocrine hormone disruptor. <laughs> it's carcinogenic, and um, if 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 it, um, what was I going to say? Oh, if a drop, three drops of it gets in a swimming pool, and there's any, uh, and there's chlorine in a swimming pool, which there is, it forms chloroform, and people should be evacuated from the pool. Well, well nowadays, probably there's a lot more than three drops of triclosan that are in that swimming pool and even combines with drinking water, the chlorine that's in our regular tap water. Yeah, well, people don't really pay attention to things like that because they assume that because they've been around a long time, they must be safe. You know, it's it's the same thing. Well, with, also, like, why you would think, well, why would they put something that was toxic in your in your mouthwash or in your toothpaste or in your baby wipes or yeah. even your makeup and your powders and your shaving cream or even in your shoes or in your cutting boards? Who would even think that those chemicals would be in some of those things. Well, that's right. Well, then there's another group of chemicals called uh, quaternary ammonium, and those can be found in preservatives and skincare products and fabric softeners and dryer sheets and the bisphenol A and the baby bottles well, you... and medical and dental devices and coatings on cans. All these things are toxic. And we're out of time, so we're going to need to stop. This is great stuff, but I want to remind you, we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsaputa.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life and get out there and exercise. All right. <laughs>